Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALRPRA Weekly Law Practice Management Radio. ALRPRA is a national law practice management agency headquartered in Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. The ALRPRA team helps law firm, businesses, patrons spend more time servicing their clients and professionally managing production and promotion activities. The ALRPRA production division called Pleading Drafter focuses on law firm, attorney, and staff placement, law practice management audits, billing audits, courier, and process services, and finally the eBay store, through which we sell our law firm clients' gently used office equipment. The ALRPRA promotion division called Law Publicist focuses on law firm marketing, branding, and image consulting, as well as traditional public relations functions, including monthly communications services, including copywriting for your law firm blog, newsletter, social media, as well as article publishing in your target market. Team ALRPRA uses this radio show to promote relevant law practice management guests. We also offer free monthly social media conference calls with tips and trends. We have a monthly e-zine called the Law Publicist Weekly featuring law practice management articles and resources. We are always looking for great content and advertisers for the Law Publicist Weekly. Today is Thursday, May 11th, Tuesday, May 11th, sorry about that, uh, 2010, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. Today, today's guest is criminal defense and immigration attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill of the Chicago and Miami law firm of Perry, Krumziak, and Jack. Sarah will be discussing the aftermath of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Padilla versus Kentucky concerning the criminal defense attorney's responsibility to advise clients of the immigration consequences of a conviction. A little bit of background on Sarah Elizabeth Dill. Uh, Her practice focuses on immigration, criminal defense, international law, and sports law in Chicago, Miami, and Milwaukee. Prior to joining Perry Perry Krumziak and Jack, LLP, Sarah ran her own successful law firm in Miami, Florida, where she represented individuals and corporations before the Immigration Service, Immigration Courts, and provided criminal defense representation in state and federal courts. Prior to that, she was a trial lawyer for a nonprofit immigration agency and the Miami-Dade Public Defender's Office. Sarah has extensive trial and appellate experience. Sarah is currently serving as the co-chair of the American Bar Association's Criminal Justice Section's Immigration Committee. For the last two years, Sarah has been appointed as a commissioner for the ABA Commission on Immigration. She also serves on the ABA Criminal Justice Council. Sarah served as the chair of the ABA Young Lawyer Division Criminal and Juvenile Justice Section from 2006 to 2007. Before we begin, we appreciate the opportunity to remind you that we broadcast normally every Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Central, which is 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific, although this week we are broadcasting to you on Tuesday, and we will be back with Sarah Elizabeth Dill on Tuesday, May 18th, to talk about the aftermath of the change in the law in Arizona, also concerning immigration. We do have a great show for you this afternoon, and we'll open up for callers 30 minutes after we begin. Be sure to email your questions to info at alrpra.com. Again, that's info at alrpra.com. 
or please call in by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. That telephone number again is area code 917-889-9732. So as we begin, Sarah, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm good, Nick. Thank you for having me here. All right. Well, we are very uh, interested in hearing what you have to offer uh, concerning the Padilla versus Kentucky decision and how that will affect our uh, criminal defense attorneys as well as the immigration attorneys uh, here in Illinois and also uh, for our attorney listeners in New York, California, D.C., um, and nationwide. So, um, Sarah, get, just starting to, uh, you know, go forward, um, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about uh, the background that yields and comes up to this decision? Thank you, Nick. Every year, hundreds of thousands of individuals are processed through the state and federal criminal justice systems. While exact numbers are not available, it is likely that nearly one out of ten criminal defendants is not a U.S. citizen. In areas of high immigrant populations, this will be a far greater percentage of a criminal defender's caseload. In the federal criminal system, where immigration-related offenses are now considered crimes, recent statistics show that over one-third of all cases in federal courts are immigration-based offenses. As the Supreme Court stated in 1922, Deportation may result in loss of both property and life, or all that makes life worth living. Non-citizens convicted of crimes are subject to a punishment beyond the criminal penalty in the form of immigration consequences. In many cases, the immigration penalty is grossly disproportionate to the criminal punishment because of the sometimes irrational nature of the intersection between immigration and criminal law. In almost all cases, the misdemeanor is subject to mandatory and extended immigration detention, mandatory deportation, and permanent separation from family and community in the United States. A misdemeanor may also be deported to the country of origin without being permitted to apply for asylum, even if there is evidence that he or she may be persecuted or killed for religious or political reasons upon return. These consequences apply not only to undocumented persons, but to longtime lawful permanent residents. Over the last 10 years, increasingly harsh immigration laws and focused enforcement by the Department of Homeland Security, coupled with no right to assigned counsel in immigration proceedings, have resulted in a dramatic increase in the number of persons detained and deported for crimes, including misdemeanors and petty offenses. In 2008, DHS officers detained 378,000 non-citizens and affected the expedited removal, which means without going before a judge or a court, of over 100,000 non-citizens. A recently released American Bar Association study found that there was a dramatic expansion of the grounds for removing non-citizens based on what are called aggravated felony convictions, which neither need to be aggravated or a felony, and the removal of lawful permanent residents based upon misdemeanor convictions for offenses found to be what are called crimes involving moral turpitude, even in cases where no jail sentence was ever imposed. The reason for the increase in the number of individuals in removal proceedings is the increased focus on apprehending and removing criminal non-citizens. Three main actions of this are 287G, a program in which local law enforcement officers participate in immigration enforcement efforts, the Criminal Alien Program, where local law enforcement agencies notify DHS of foreign-born detainees in their custody, and the Secure Communities Initiative, in which foreign-born persons detained by local law enforcement agencies 
are identified when the agencies run the detainee's fingerprints through the FBI and Homeland Security's databases as part of the typical booking process. Although 287G was recently halted after a Homeland Security internal investigation and report, Homeland Security is planning to significantly expand the scope of secure communities with the goal of having the immigration status checked for every person booked into every local jail in the United States. This makes it even more important for the immigration advice to begin at the commencement of the criminal case and in the first interview with the client. Um, now, Sarah, I have a question, uh, What just getting started. I thought that non-citizens had constitutional rights. What's the status of non-citizen rights? They do have constitutional rights. And although in the news recently with the uh, suspected terrorist bombing in New York City, there's been a lot of discussion about how to prosecute those cases because of the rights, all non-citizens accused of a crime, whether in state or federal court, are entitled to the same rights and protections in the criminal justice system as any U.S. citizen. For this group, the immigration consequences are often more severe than the sentence imposed by the criminal court, which makes protection of these rights even more important. And this is exactly the point that was addressed by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Padilla versus Kentucky decision regarding the Sixth Amendment right to the effective assistance of counsel. Okay. Well, what is the right to effective assistance of counsel, and how did this, this right develop over time? This right comes from the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. So it's been around as long as our country has been here. And it basically states that all individuals accused of a crime have the right to the effective assistance of counsel, including the appointment of counsel in any state or federal criminal prosecution, regardless of whether misdemeanor or felony, or if it leads to imprisonment for any period of time. The United States Supreme Court in 1963, in the case of Gideon versus Wainwright, stressed how important this right is. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read a short paragraph from that decision because it really stresses how important the court found the right to counsel to be. Sure, go ahead. The Supreme Court stated, reason and reflection require us to recognize that in our adversary system of criminal justice, any person hailed into court who is too poor to hire a lawyer cannot be assured a fair trial unless counsel is provided for him. This seems to us to be an obvious truth. Government hires lawyers to prosecute and defendants who have the money hire lawyers to defend. These are the strongest indications of the widespread belief that lawyers in criminal courts are necessities, not luxuries. From the very beginning, our state and national constitutions and laws have laid great emphasis on procedural and substantive safeguards designed to assure fair trials before impartial tribunals in which every defendant stands equal before the law. This noble ideal cannot be realized if the poor man charged with a crime has to face his accusers without a lawyer to assist him. Stemming from this decision, the model rules of professional conduct require lawyers to provide competent representation abide by client decisions, exercise diligence, and communicate with the client regarding the representation. Although there is no requirement for appointed counsel in the immigration court context, it does exist in the criminal context. And this leads to a further obligation of a responsibility to monitor changes in the law, investigate and prepare cases, act promptly on the client's behalf, and if a lawyer is not experienced with or knowledgeable about a specific area of the law, either associate with counsel who is knowledgeable or educate him or herself about that area of law. 
You know, Sarah, one of the first things that comes to my mind is, is that there may be uh, a disconnect between the criminal defense bar and the immigration bar as far as knowing what the other needs to know. So um, I, I, I presume that the Padilla decision uh, will, you know, shake a lot of that out. So let's talk about Padilla versus Kentucky and what it's going to mean to all of our attorneys. Exactly. And Padilla may be the most important right to counsel case ever decided. Uh, it's expanded on over 40 years of Supreme Court precedent. This case was handed down on March 31, 2010, and the U.S. Supreme Court addressed the question of whether an alien was denied effective assistance of counsel and thus entitled to reversal of the conviction based on the failure of the attorney to warn or advise of the immigration consequences of a conviction. The court held that deportation is uniquely severe and that the immigration consequences of criminal convictions are inextricably linked to criminal proceedings. The court further held that the Sixth Amendment requires defense counsel to competently advise a non-citizen defendant regarding the immigration penalties of a guilty plea. To remain silent or to provide inaccurate advice constitutes ineffective assistance of counsel. The Padilla decision, as Justice Stevens made a point in writing for the majority, involved a defendant, Jose Padilla, a native of Honduras, who had been a lawful permanent resident, meaning he'd been living legally in the United States, for more than 40 years. He had served with honor as a member of the U.S. Armed Forces during the Vietnam War. However, he faced deportation after pleading guilty to the transportation of a large amount of marijuana in Kentucky. His state felony drug trafficking crime was clearly a deportable offense. Padilla claimed that his lawyer advised him to plead guilty after reassuring him that he did not have to worry about immigration because he'd been in the country for so long. He then, Padilla then filed a post-conviction petition claiming that he would have refused the plea and insisted on going to trial if he had been correctly advised about its consequences for his immigration status. As relief, he sought vacating the conviction and withdrawal of his plea. The Supreme Court of Kentucky refused his request, holding that the Sixth Amendment's guarantee of effective assistance of counsel affords no protection against a lawyer's erroneous advice about what they called a collateral consequence of conviction, something that the Supreme Court of Kentucky defined as one that is not within the sentencing authority of the trial court. Sarah, can I jump in and ask a question? What happened to Mr. Padilla before he filed his uh, post conviction petition, did he, was he in the process of removal? Yes, he okay. was. Okay. And that's often how individuals first become aware of the fact that they, their guilty plea and conviction have rendered them deportable. It's when immigration either comes and picks them up at their house in the middle of the night, or for whatever reason they're sent a notice saying to report to the immigration courts. Okay. And as I'll get into a little bit later to explain when we talk about motions to vacate, and some timing issues that previously existed that under Padilla may no longer exist. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Not a problem. Now, the Supreme Court, after hearing Mr. Padilla's case, reversed the Kentucky Supreme Court and ruled that the lawyer's incompetent advice violated Mr. Padilla's right to counsel. While two concurring justices thought that the case should have turned on the fact that the advice was incorrect, all seven agreed that lawyers for non-citizen defendants who are considering a guilty plea have an affirmative obligation at least to warn their clients that they may be deported as a result. 
The Padilla decision clearly governs cases where a non-citizen is threatened with deportation on the basis of conviction. And while its effects will be felt most immediately in the criminal cases involving non-citizen defendants, defense lawyers must now concern themselves with the broader legal effects of a criminal conviction on their clients. The systemic impact of this new obligation cannot be underestimated. Padilla may turn out to be the most important right to counsel case since Gideon, and the Padilla advisory may become as familiar a fixture of a criminal case as the Miranda warning. Huh. Well, now knowing that, as you're sitting as either a criminal uh, defense attorney or as an immigration attorney, how do you know whether there's a Padilla claim and how is it evaluated? The court in Padilla talked about how these cases, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, are within the scope of the case of Strickland v. Washington, where the court initially set forth how an individual must make a claim that they received ineffective assistance of counsel and therefore their plea was involuntary or some other reason exists to vacate the conviction. Although the lower court in Padilla held that a the collateral consequence of deportation is not within the scope of the Sixth Amendment, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected this reasoning and said that this is a unique situation where immigration consequences and deportation are in fact a penalty in and of themselves and thus not subject to the direct versus collateral consequence analysis. In applying the two-prong test from Strickland v. Washington, the first prong, constitutional deficiency, as the court held, is necessarily linked to the practice and expectations of the legal community, which in turn assumes that defense attorneys must advise their clients with regard to deportation consequences. Because of this professional norm, in addition to the court's prevailing view that the right to remain in the United States might be more important to an immigrant than the possibility of a jail sentence, an attorney should reasonably be expected to familiarize him or herself with relevant immigration statutes when, and this is where the Padilla decision becomes quite important, the court makes a distinction between clear versus unclear immigration consequences. In some situations, the mere title of an offense, for example, drug trafficking, it's very clear that any drug trafficking offense will render someone deportable, there's no relief available, and would also subject the immigrant to mandatory detention. In other situations where it may not be as clear, certain domestic violence offenses, some misdemeanors may or may not be aggravated felonies. And the court, in looking at these two sets of possibilities in immigration law, given the mess that immigration law currently is in, they found that when the deportation consequences are clear, the duty to give advice is equally clear. With regard to the second Strickland prong, prejudice to the defendant, the court did not issue a decision on this, yet remanded it to the Kentucky court for review. One of the interesting things that the court addressed was that there, it did not find a difference between an act of commission and an act of omission. In the Padilla case, the attorney specifically said there will be no consequences. The Supreme Court held, however, that it doesn't matter whether an attorney gives misadvice or fails to give any advice at all. It concluded that a holding limited to affirmative misadvice would invite two absurd consequences. It would permit attorneys to remain silent on important matters, and it would deny even rudimentary deportation advice to an entire class of clients. Although the state 
contended that a ruling covering both misadvice and omission of any advice would lead to a flood of challenges of existing guilty pleas made by non-citizen defendants. The court countered by stating that a similar concern was raised following its decision in Hill v. Lockhart, yet there was no flood of challenges following that ruling. And this is because you have to look again at the rational decision of what a person would have done with correct immigration advice and whether they still would have insisted in going to trial on the charges or might have sought and been able to negotiate a different plea or a different sentence. This is the prejudice prong. It's the second prong of Strickland. And if Mr. Padilla on remand is unable to establish prejudice or he is unable to show that he would have handled his case differently had he known, then his motion will fail. And so this is something that as attorneys do seek to vacate prior convictions, they need to remember that they need to look at not only the fact that the immigration advice wasn't given, but that a different result may have been possible or that a person would have been able to take a plea to a misdemeanor or would have accepted a lesser sentence or some other result could have occurred. The other issue on this, and I'll get into this a little bit later, is that if someone already has other criminal convictions, a conviction in one particular case may not even matter at that point. They may already be deportable. So uh, just to recap, my understanding from what you're explaining is that the standards of one of the prongs, at least, is very similar to um, legal malpractice claims where the the person um, asserting that claim has to demonstrate or should demonstrate uh, based that reasonably, certainly, that they would have prevailed in the underlying suit in the first place or that, you know, so, um, okay, so that sums that up. Now, here's my question because it sounds like motions to vacate um, could be, there could just be a flood of them. I'm thinking about people calling their counsel and saying, um, you know, dear attorney, I just pled guilty to a shoplifting charge, or I had a, a violation of probation, or, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And I just, I can see already a flood of misunderstanding and litigants thinking that they're going to be able to reverse almost any conviction under the sun. Um, I, I, this just has to, you know, you know, be a nightmare for, for a lot of attorneys whose phones are ringing off the hook now. So, um, you know, so what about existing conditions? How far back can we go? Um, how retroactive, you know, what, what's your advice for the, the, you know, for the attorneys out there? Well, Nick, as you know, and as most of our listeners know, rulings can only have a retroactive effect if they involve an application of an already existing rule or law as opposed to a new rule. And in Padilla, the court signaled, they didn't explicitly state, but they signaled that its holding would have a retroactive effect because what they did is they were applying the law that was set forth in Strickland v. Washington as opposed to a new rule. The court even went at length to state that there are professional norms that have required defense counsel to provide advice on the deportation consequences of a client's plea. However, there, one distinction that needs to be made at this point is that although courts have also had a requirement in many jurisdictions and in federal court under Rule 11 for a warning from the court that by entering this guilty plea you may be subject to immigration consequences or deportation, this goes above and beyond the court warnings. And one, the other thing that clients need to keep in mind is that if they seek to withdraw or return a plea, if it's within recent years, they may subject themselves to retrial, there may be more significant penalties, and they could have a more severe result. So it's really something that has to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, 
the availability for non-citizens to challenge ineffectively counseled pleas will depend upon the state court procedural vehicle. For example, in Florida, there is previously a method to vacate a conviction based upon the failure of the trial court to warn. In 2006, there was a set of cases in PERT and the Green decisions where the Florida courts put a very strict two-year time limit on vacating these convictions. However, now that we're talking about the criminal defense attorney's responsibilities and the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, those cases all fall to the wayside because this is now involving a violation of a defendant's constitutional rights. Interestingly, the dissenters in Padilla both discussed the fact that if this had been a due process claim versus a Sixth Amendment claim, they may have been more sympathetic and voted with the majority. And so there's still, you have the two arguments. You have the Sixth Amendment, and I think you also do have a due process analysis that you can make. There's also an ability to proceed through federal habeas corpus under 28 U.S.C. 2254, but with that, you again, you first have to exhaust your state remedies. And so a Padilla challenger will have to look at what happened in the underlying conviction. There will have to be affidavits. They will have to make all the showings under Strickland, and it may be something that the result may not be any different, or it may be something that if they're able to vacate the conviction, they've probably already served their sentence, done probation, done their community service, paid their fines, and so for it simply to be a change in the court's docket so that they're convicted of a misdemeanor versus a felony, but it allows them to stay in the country with their family, with their children, with their employment, everything else, especially for those individuals that have been here for so long, it's something that it protects their rights. And I predict that within the next few months we will see what happens, how courts respond, how prosecutors' offices respond to this, whether we'll actually have to litigate these or whether prosecutors' offices will say, the Supreme Court said what they did in Padilla, we'll stipulate and just close this out to something else. So we're going to see more laws uh, and more, more decisions coming down that interpret this, and I'm, I'm thinking that, um, you know, what, so backing up a little bit, uh, did they need to be, did they, does the litigant in wanting to vacate a guilty plea, did they need to have, again, as a prerequisite, they need to have experienced some uh, adverse or uh, effect uh, immigration-wise? They can't just be, you know, in jail and, you know, suspecting that maybe somewhere down the road they're going to be deported? There, and courts have looked at this prior to Padilla in, when they looked at the judicial failure to warn. And the trend around the country was that you didn't have to actually have been served with your notice to appear in immigration court or have immigration pick you up. That as long as there was the threat of deportation or that you were convicted of an offense that would render you deportable, that showing would be enough. So for example, as an attorney, whether an immigration attorney or defense attorney, filing one of these motions, I'd simply show, here's the statute my client was convicted of, Here's the immigration provision that specifically states this person, it's mandatory deportation, there's no waiver available. Provide that authority to the court and just explain that either once the sentence is completed or once immigration gets around to finding my client, they will be deported. Right. Well, and that's the, that's the thing, that once they get around to filing, you know, finding the client, you know, once something triggers um, and, you know, ICE is alerted. So, um, and again, to recap, it sounds like there really isn't an actual time limitation on this that once you go through your first year state remedies and other federal remedies that those are controlling so you need to really I guess look at those so there really isn't a clear-cut answer to that question. Other than the fact that 
based on my reading of Padilla and a lot of what's come out about Padilla, the general opinion at this point is that there is no time restriction. Okay. This goes all the way back. Okay. Um, my next question is, what do defense attorneys need to do post-Padilla? So what do they need to do now to provide effective assistance of counsel? If they're putting on the checklist of what they need to do when you know, counseling their client, what do they need to commit to memory? There are a number of basic things. Uh, first of all, defense counsel should be familiar with basic immigration consequences that flow from different types of pleas to different offenses, the immigration consequences of sentencing alternatives, lengths of prison sentences, probation, uh, diversionary programs, and whether something requires a plea or an admission of guilt. At the commencement of work on a criminal case, the most important thing a lawyer has to do, according to Padilla, and I think even before Padilla this, is, this was important, is that they need to determine the current immigration status of the client. For example, no status, a pending application, a non-immigrant visa, lawful permanent resident, temporary protected status, or U.S. citizen. And towards the end, I'm, I'll, I'll give some examples, some questions to ask, but this is very important because you can have a client who doesn't even realize they're a U.S. citizen based on where they're born, based on their parents. There have been cases that I've worked on where someone was deported, they came back in the country, they were convicted of reentry after deportation, they left again, came back in the country, and on their, when they were again charged with reentry, we determined that they were actually a U.S. citizen and never should have been deported in the, the first place. The whole time? The whole entire time. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And this person huh. served time in federal prison. They suffered two deportations, and it turned out that they had been born in the United States, but at a very young age were taken back to Mexico. Uh, how? I, I suppose that can happen. My question is, how is that possible? But I suppose it is. It is, and so it's the so from the initial meeting with the client, the first questions to ask you know are to find out because this inquiry will guide the remainder of the representation. A person's status determines what immigration penalties will result. For example, someone who is undocumented may be able to take a plea to an offense that someone who's a lawful permanent resident wouldn't be able to. Again, this is part of the mess and the inconsistencies that exist in immigration law. There's also needs to be discussion of an individual's family in the United States because family members may allow an individual to receive a waiver for a conviction. And finally, defense counsel has to obtain the complete criminal record because prior convictions may have already rendered the individual deportable. However, one thing that all defense attorneys should be aware of, regardless of Padilla, is a U.S. Supreme Court decision called INS versus St. Cyr, CYR. Because under this decision, certain guilty pleas entered prior to 1996 may qualify for a waiver because at the time, pleading guilty to particular offenses did not result in someone having a deportable offense. In 1996 and 1997, when the immigration laws were significantly changed, there were a number of offenses that became deportable offenses that previously weren't. And the Supreme Court said you cannot hold someone accountable for a guilty plea to something that at the time would not have rendered them deportable. Quick question. Did they have a list? So did they have a list of these are the deportable offenses? There is a end. It's either on the list or not on the list? Or did they have it's, or how much discretion is there? It's not that clear, and I'll, I'll, I, I'll get into that at the end as I go okay. through some of those offenses. But there is a list, but there are things that aren't on the list. There are things that are on the list that actually aren't deportable offenses. Again, it's this is the result we have from an immigration law that's been 
you know, tinkered with over the last 20 years, but needs a complete overhaul because you do have those sorts of inconsistencies. Question also, sorry to keep interrupting, but now this suggestion that it needs a complete overhaul, um, to the extent that that is a little bit of editorializing on your behalf, what else about in the decision? How much is that mentioned, that we need an entire overhaul? There, there is mention of it in the decision, and it's, it's one decision where you see the justices perhaps taking shots at the status of immigration law, even making fun of it at some points because sure. of the inconsistencies. And you can tell that even, you know, and that's part of the clear versus unclear analysis that the justices are saying the immigration law isn't clear. It's not readily apparent of what's going to render someone deportable. And so I do, and I think that given the Padilla decision, there is an element of it where the court's calling on Congress to say, you need to do something about this. Well, that in the Arizona, which we'll talk about next week, yes. but we'll have more fun with that next week. So <laughs> sorry to distract you uh, back to as you were saying. Not a problem. And Basically, once you have, once defense counsel has these initial pieces of information from the client, they need to start investigating the specific immigration penalties that a plea would impose on the defendant. Uh, you have to look at both avoiding deportability, but also maintaining eligibility for relief from deportation. Those are two very distinct things. And in these cases, defense counsel has to keep in mind that the penalty or consequence that's most important to the client may not necessarily be a prison sentence. It, the immigration may be the utmost concern. And so it's very important that counsel researches into this, does their investigation, and then discusses this with the client and what consequences will adhere. Okay. Um, my next question is, does Padilla only apply to the decision of someone faced with a charge to plead guilty uh, or what other, because I can imagine that, you know, the, the offense could be, as you said, one on the list that's a sort of minor offense that you know, sitting, you know, even six, you know, 60 days in jail might be a better thing than, you know, being kicked out of the country. So, um, so I mean, that's, that's, that's clear to us, but I, what other, what other things are, are applicable here? What other decisions are hinge on this decision? Well, Padilla concerned a plea, all of this analysis and the advice has to go to every decision that a defendant takes, whether to go to trial, when to enter a diversion or a drug treatment program, uh, probation issues, violation of protection orders, admission of an addiction, or even sentencing or delinquency hearings. So all of these things can carry adverse immigration consequences. And so the attorney has to consider Padilla for everything, not just whether to plead guilty. And in some cases, as I mentioned, a defendant has to choose whether to prioritize getting a good immigration result versus a lesser criminality. Some immigrant defendants care only about getting the smallest jail or prison term. And in these cases, once the attorney gives the immigration advice, if the client still says, I'm going to plead guilty, I don't care about immigration, I just want to get out of prison or I don't want to do jail time, at that point, the defense attorney then has to do things to make the record clear that they did advise on Padilla. Uh, the other issue that comes up in this is when a defendant is subject to mandatory detention pending trial because they're undocumented, if immigration places a hold on them, those are the defendants that generally want to get out as fast as possible. And so those cases do pose an additional difficulty for defense counsel. Other defendants would trade any concern in order to avoid deportability and so that they can remain in the United States with their families 
And a defendant can only make this crucial decision if he or she understands the potential criminal and immigration penalties. Otherwise, they're not making an informed decision. So if your client states that their immigration status is the highest priority, the defense has to be conducted with this in mind, and so the goals and the strategies may be very differently than they would be if just the criminal penalties were at stake. Sarah, is there a fast track option here when you make a when you have a Padilla a issue and a Padilla claim? Is you know they're potentially you know going to be if someone has pled guilty, you know they want to vacate that guilty plea. They're concerned that ICE is going to be down the street. Is there is there do you get to fast track that in the courts, or is that just depend on jurisdiction or you know? It's going to depend on the jurisdiction. Uh, there are certainly issues. Uh, if someone is out of custody but they're worried that immigration is going to pick them up, uh, then certainly you do have to do things. You have to file for emergency stays with the courts, which sometimes, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, means you may have to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and file a writ just to get immigration to stay removal of your client. Mm -hmm. uh, you can work as much as you can. This is why it's going to be interesting to see how prosecutors' offices respond to this and whether they're willing to stipulate to these motions to vacate in order to avoid what's already a crowded docket system to go from there. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, now, can you give, I, this is a lot of information to process, can you give us a little bit of an overview of some key points regarding the immigration consequences of these criminal convictions? Definitely. Uh, a large number, if not almost all, state and federal criminal offenses have immigration consequences. And it involves an analysis of the elements of the offense compared to the immigration provision that's in the immigration statutes. Most importantly, it's the aggravated felony definition, which, as I stated, neither needs to be aggravated nor a felony. There are misdemeanors that can be considered aggravated felonies. There was a decision in the Supreme Court a few years ago in Lopez versus Gonzalez that addressed what should be considered an aggravated felony. And I'd advise every criminal defense attorney out there to read that. Uh, What's that case again? Lopez v. Gonzalez. And what becomes problematic is that the immigration consequence really depends upon the individual circumstances of the case. And so this is why you can't just call the, the immigration attorney and say, is my client going to be deported for pleading guilty to a misdemeanor battery offense? Because the immigration attorney, if they know what they're doing, is going to respond with 30 other questions that you need to ask your client. And so that's the first thing to keep in mind is, you know, aggravated felony, rule of thumb, if it's a felony, it's most likely going to render your client deportable. The distinction and the problems come when you start talking about misdemeanors and certain things that are felonies in federal court but not in state court and vice versa. The other thing that's very important that I can't stress enough for defense attorneys is the definition of conviction. A conviction under state or federal law uh, for employment purposes, for everything else, is different than a conviction for immigration. Uh, for immigration, 8 U.S.C. 1101, little a... 48 defines a, con a conviction. And just to let our listeners know a little bit about how immigration operates, the definition is this, a formal judgment of guilt of the non-citizen entered by a court, or if adjudication of guilt has been withheld, where a judge or jury has found the non-citizen guilty, or where there's a plea of guilty or no contest entered, and there's the admission of sufficient facts to warrant the finding of guilt, and the judge ordered some form of punishment, penalty, or restraint on the non-citizen's liberty. Withholds of adjudication, suspended entry of sentences, 
while not considered a conviction, and where courts will actually tell an individual, you are not being convicted of this offense, immigration, it is a conviction. And the other issue that's come into play that's been very important, we have these alternative courts, deferred adjudication, diversionary programs for drug offenses, value classes, anger management, domestic violence counseling, all of these alternative programs, they won't be a conviction as long as the person does not have to enter a plea. The problem is that a number of jurisdictions have now gone to having the person enter a guilty plea. They enter the program. If they stick with the program, they do what they're supposed to do, they later vacate the plea. The problem is once that, con that plea gets entered, immigration then uses it as a conviction. And so you really need to know the jurisdiction in which you're practicing and how they operate these programs. So those are the main things that defense attorneys need to keep in mind from the get-go, the one thing that they should have in their mind that should be clear. And the other thing to keep in mind, and defense attorneys now have in their arsenal, is that the Supreme Court in Padilla specifically stated that prosecutors have to address deportation consequences and that it should be considered in plea bargaining and that if the defense attorney and the prosecutor can reach an agreement that achieves what the prosecution wants to, that results in a sentence that is fair and appropriate and in agreement with the prosecution, that changing what specific offense the person is pleading to or crafting alternative sentences and ways of resolving a case in order to take into account the immigration penalties is something that prosecutors should and are required to do by Padilla. So again, it requires the defense attorney to bring the immigration concerns to the prosecutor's attention. For the prosecutor, again, the prosecutor's responsibility again is to? To engage in plea bargaining and to consider the immigration consequences of pleading guilty to the offense. Do they paperwork it anywhere? Is it anywhere in the information or the? Um... It generally won't be. Mm -hmm. uh, in federal court, it often is a part of the pre-sentence investigation. And uh, in federal court, you know, post-Booker, Fan-Fan, and that genre of cases, when you're examining 3553A factors, an argument can now be made in federal court sentencing to use the immigration penalties as another additional thing when you're talking about sentences. Okay. Okay, my next question, uh, what are some of the strategies? A few examples of basic strategies that can be successful when you're representing a non-citizen before criminal court and avoid removability, deportability, or other consequences are that certain offenses only become aggravated felonies if a sentence of one year or more is imposed. So in these cases, defense counsel can avoid that harsh result by negotiating a sentence of 364 days rather than 365. In federal cases, counsel needs to discuss the client, with the client the impact of the 366 sentence the year and a day, which often results in the client only serving about nine months. However, that gives you the sentence of over a year, mandatory deportation, mandatory detention, your client most likely will be willing to serve the 364 days and be able to spend the rest of their life in the United States. When handling probation violations, it may be better to plead to a new offense and take time on that conviction rather than admitting the violation and sometimes getting more than the 365 days. Domestic violence contexts, other contexts, there are a number of offenses that you can plead to that will not render you deportable, but you still have a conviction on your record. And so, and there are a number of resources that you can look to for that. 
And what's important is that even if you can't negotiate a plea that will avoid such a negative consequence, this is where defense lawyers are really going to need to step up and be true to their profession because you will have cases where the client will have to go to trial. And they may be facing 40 years, but if you're not able to negotiate a plea, you have to you have to put it all in. You have to go for the trial. You have to file the motions to the press. You have to do your investigations and do everything you should be doing as a criminal defense attorney regardless of your client's status. But in these cases, you may be taking a lot of cases to trial simply because of the outcome. And so this is where the defense bar is really going to have an influence on how we react to Padilla, how we go about immigration reform, and how the criminal justice system is handled as a whole. You know, the, one of the things that comes to mind is that often when you do have someone who is potentially facing an, uh, an immigration problem, um, the clients may not be well-funded for big trials. So this seems like this may also put a added burden on some of our uh, public sector, uh, you know, defense defense groups. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? It is going to. And, you know, as someone who was a public defender in Miami and saw the level of caseloads we had and how many individuals that are not citizens there, I mean, it really is going to put a burden on those offices. And it's something that I've already been working to lobby state governments to provide funding for this because they're going to need to essentially hire either an in-house immigration attorney or have money to hire an immigration expert as they would a DNA expert or a fingerprint expert or anything else. Mm -hmm. And it is going to be problematic. There are a lot of pleas taken at arraignment before you even have the opportunity to spend more than 30 seconds with your client. Certainly. And so it's definitely going to put a higher burden on the public defender's offices. And in a way, this decision, as broad and far-reaching as its impact is going to be, you know, as you alluded to before, is perhaps the Supreme Court's way of telling Congress and telling the state government fix it, fix the system. Yeah, because I can remember being, you know, in, an undergraduate at Marquette University when I was working as an intern for the Milwaukee County DA's office. I can remember being in intake court and the public defender's office. Their their staff had a, a stack of, you know, and was just questions like violation of probation, yes or no. Um, you know, what are we going to do? And they had literally seconds. So I just I can't imagine that they could possibly do their job. It's got to be a huge burden on them. So um, we'll talk more about that later. But I know that everybody is burning to hear this list. Let's get the list. And by the way, callers, um, callers out there, if we have anyone, uh, we can take some calls. Again, let me give you that telephone number. It's area code 917-889-9732. Again, area code 917 917- 889-9732. If you have any questions uh, for Sarah Elizabeth Dill on point, please call in, um, and we'll also make sure to um, provide some contact information afterwards. But we're all burning for this list. Let's let's get down to some of the nitty-gritty here on what some of the criminal grounds for deportation are under the current U.S. Code. Okay. Title 8 of the U.S. Code, Section 1227, lists the following as grounds for deportation. Criminal acts without conviction showing the alien is a certain type of person, such as a drunk, addict, gambler, prostitute, or polygamist. Note, it doesn't have to be a conviction. A crime involving moral turpitude, misdemeanor, if the alien is convicted of two or more crimes not involving a single scheme, so it's not something where you get arrested with the marijuana and the paraphernalia, that would be a single scheme. Or a crime involving moral turpitude felony, if the alien is convicted within five years of admission into the U.S. Weapons convictions, firearms convictions, including misdemeanors, 
domestic violence convictions, including stalking, child abuse, child neglect, child abandonment, or a violation of a protective order, convictions for alien smuggling, immigration fraud, and alien voting, drug convictions of any type, unless the conviction is for simple possession of 30 grams or less of marijuana for personal use, or there's a caveat in here, if it's a drug paraphernalia offense related to simple possession of marijuana, for example, the marijuana pipe that's used for personal use to smoke presumably less than 30 grams of marijuana. And the be-all, end-all, the list that every criminal defense attorney should have on their wall, any aggravated felony listed at 8 U.S.C. Section 1101A43. Now, for practitioners out there who don't necessarily want to sit down with the Immigration and Nationality Act and read through this probably five pages of statutes, there are a few resources that are very helpful. Uh, there's Norton Tooby's book on immigration and crimes, Rob, Bob McWhorter's book published through the ABA, Criminal Lawyer's Guide to Immigration Law. Additionally, every criminal defense attorney at this point should be going, reading the Padilla decision, but also reading the amicus briefs that were filed. And the ABA's amicus brief in Padilla lists books, online sources, and state-specific guides. The decision in Padilla goes through some of these again. And these are very handy resources, especially the state-specific guides that can alert an attorney to what is out there, what's going to be a problem, what specific offenses under a specific state code are deportable. And finally, the ABA set up a Padilla resource page where we're seeking to bring a lot of these resources into one easily accessible website that's regularly updated. This can be found by visiting www.abanet.org slash crim, C-R-I-M, just J-U-S-T. From there, you can go to the Defense Function or Immigration Committee pages and link to the Padilla resource page. And this is being continuously updated because we recognize that criminal defense attorneys do not have the immigration experience and they're going to need some very quick hands-on training and readily available resources where they can say, okay, my client's charged with this offense and we need to now discuss immigration. Okay. Um, another question I have are what are some key points that you would like to leave with the defense attorneys considering um, in now, now that we're post-Padilla? Uh, first of all, and this is most, a lot of this is straight from the decision, but it's such good language. Deportation is a penalty, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, and so when you're advocating on behalf of your clients, you can assert that deportation is a penalty and needs to be taken into consideration in plea bargains and in sentencing. Professional standards provide principles as to what constitutes effective assistance of counsel. Looking at the ABA standards for defense counsel, as well as for prosecution, uh, you can see things that they suggest that attorneys must do, and a lot of this is very applicable to the immigration context. The Sixth Amendment requires affirmative, competent advice regarding immigration consequences. You cannot stay silent, you can no longer just ignore the problem, nor can you simply tell your client you need to go talk to an immigration attorney. Now you're required to either do the investigation yourself and provide competent advice, or to hire an immigration attorney. And it's something that, you know, for criminal defense attorneys who don't have the knowledge or maybe they don't want to learn an entire another subset of law, many immigration out attorneys out there would be happy to come in on an hourly basis or a flat fee, do two or three hours of work to meet with the client, review their criminal history, review the criminal case, and render a simple opinion letter that states, 
here are your immigration consequences, here's what I think you can plead to, these are the sentences you need to be aware of. And so that little expenditure of money protects the criminal defense attorney from an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, more importantly, properly advises the client as to the immigration consequences and will be something the client can hang on to, and then it's up to the client to do with as they will, whether they decide to retain an immigration attorney to file some applications or do what they need to do while the criminal case is pending, but there definitely needs to be an interplay between the criminal defense bars and the immigration bars after this. And most importantly, defense counsel must now investigate and advise about consequences of pleas, alternatives, trials, different offenses, as well as sentencing alternatives. Okay. Now, having said that, those who want their list of questions for their intake procedures, what are some initial interview or initial meeting questions um, with the client that criminal defense attorneys need to ask? Exactly. And, you know, in case you can't write fast enough while listening or coming back to the website and listening to this on demand, uh, there are also, there's a practice pointer that's coming out, I believe, this week from the ABA that has a lot of these questions and lists and things that will be helpful to defense counsel. But essentially asking someone, where were you born? How did you enter the United States? What immigration statuses have you held, if any? How did you obtain that status? Have you ever applied for immigration status before? Do you have anything pending? Family members, what is their status? Are they U.S. citizens or permanent residents? Has the individual ever been ordered deported before or subject to immigration court proceedings? Their previous arrest or criminal record, and again, this is where you get into the St. Cyr decisions and when was that plea of guilty entered. The other thing about St. Cyr I'll mention at this point is you have to look into whether the person pled guilty or went to trial. If they went to trial under St. Cyr, they don't have that relief available. And finally, now with the availability of a motion to vacate, if the person previously pled guilty to a criminal offense, the new criminal defense attorney then needs to delve into whether the prior attorney discussed the immigration consequences because the criminal defense attorney then may need to be filing a motion to vacate the previous conviction. Okay, so those are a set of pointers and lists and questions for counsel and what they need to do. What about the courts? What do the courts need to do? This will be interesting to see what happens because currently in federal court, the Rule 11 warning making sure that a person is advised and asked by the judge, do you understand that there may be immigration consequences? Virtually every state court has a similar judicial warning. Now the question becomes, are, how much are courts going to have to inquire into the effective assistance of counsel? And whether they're going to have to find out, did your, what did your attorney discuss with you? You have issues of attorney-client privilege in this context, as well as delving into a defendant's particular immigration status in open court. And so it will, we'll need to see, one, how Congress responds in dictating what the federal courts are going to have to do and what state courts are going to do to make a record from here on out of what immigration advice was given. Okay. Finally, our last question for today is, how do you think Padilla is going to impact the criminal justice system and immigration reform? As you suggested that the whole system is uh, likely in good need of reform. And do you think, finally, that this Padilla decision is a good decision? I do think Padilla is a good decision, and it was a surprising decision. We were hopeful that it would come out this way because this involves the most basic protection of rights, due process, equal protection concerns. Given that in the last 30 years, 
deportation has become such a difficult thing to avoid when you're talking about criminal convictions. And you have those cases where an individual has been lawfully in this country for 30 or 40 years, maybe had a very simple possession minor drug offense when they were 19 or 20 years old, has raised a family of U.S. citizens, children, grandchildren, operated a business, paid their taxes, and all of a sudden, 30 years later, because of this one conviction from back in the day, they're now subject to having to leave a country that they've made a life in. And there's also so many disparities in the system between undocumented, how you entered the country, your status, that it really is something that needs, the law needs to be reformed. And I'm certainly not advocating that there should be no consequences when you commit crimes. We definitely want to be a country of law-abiding citizens, regardless of immigration status. But we def it, due process definitely requires the decision in Padilla. And it's the protection of the rights that are going to remain the most important thing. Sarah, thank you so much for clearing some of this up and shedding some light on some of the questions. Um, if any of our defense uh, counsel or immigration counsel out there have questions, how can they get a hold of you? number of ways. Uh, you can visit my law firm's website, www.pkjlaw.com. Uh, my email address, S is in Sam, Dill, D-I-L-L, at pkjlaw.com. Uh, you can also feel free to give my office a call, 305-577-9466, uh, and happy to come in and advise on these cases. We'd love to work with the criminal defense bar and whatever training we can give you in assistance in representing immigrants to make sure that their rights are protected down the road. Such great information. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank attorney Sarah Elizabeth Dill uh, from the firm of Perry Krumziak and Jack for being with us today to share such great information for our criminal defense and immigration attorneys on the Padilla versus Kentucky decision. And we also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to ALRPRA Radio. And we encourage you to share these broadcasts with those who you'd find this would be relevant. Again, ALRPRA Incorporated's mission is to help law firms and business patrons spend more of their time serving their clients by our professionally managing their production and promotion activities. Our mission at ALRPRA's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when professional quality matters to your production and promotion. Thanks again for tuning in today, and we'll be back on Thursday um, to talk a little bit about uh, court reporting services from Bridges Court Reporting here in Chicago. Katie Kingsley will be talking a little bit about uh, some of the new trends there, and we'll be back with Sarah Dill next Tuesday, uh, the 18th of May, to talk about the fallout of the Arizona decision. So tune in next Tuesday, and then next Thursday we will have George Finder back uh, George Feiter will be back for a follow-up in the credit damage series. So thank you again, and have a nice day.